Hello, this is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. When I appeared as a guest on this show with Tom and Greg back in March of 2021, we hadn't launched The Gilded Gentleman, a spin-off show of the Barry Boys History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman focuses on the Gilded Age, but also the Belle Epoque of France and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. The life and work of Edith Wharton is one of my passions and one that I dip into regularly on my show. I invite you to enjoy all the episodes of the Bowery Boys History Podcast and to join me as well on The Gilded Gentleman, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Episode 357 of The Bowery Boys, Edith Wharton's New York. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today on the show, things are going to get quite literary. Very refined. <laughs> Very refined. As we examine the story of Edith Wharton, the acclaimed American novelist who was born in New York City and raised inside the very Gilded Age social world that she would bring to life in her prose. And in that respect, she was an insider because she was giving us, the reader, an honest look at what it was like to dine in the mansions of Fifth Avenue and attend a dinner soiree featuring tableau vivants and, uh, and carry forth an exhausting agenda of travels to Hudson River estates on the weekends, Newport during the summer, Europe, Greg, in the spring. Mm-hmm. We can read these works today and, you know, soak them in as wonderful fiction and incredible character studies. But as lovers of New York City history, we can also read her New York-based works for those recreations of another era. And a case in point, listen to how Edith Wharton started her 1920 novel, The Age of Innocence, by taking us inside the old Academy of Music, uh, which was down on 14th Street in the 1870s. On a January evening of the early 70s, Christine Nilsson was singing in Faust at the Academy of Music in New York. Though there was already talk of the erection in remote metropolitan distances above the 40s of a new opera house which should compete in costliness and splendor with those of the great European capitals, the world of fashion was still content to reassemble every winter in the shabby red and gold boxes of the sociable old academy. Conservatives cherished it for being small and inconvenient, and thus keeping out the new people whom New York was beginning to dread and yet be drawn to. And the sentimental clung to it for its historic associations, and the musical for its excellent acoustics always so problematic a quality in halls built for the hearing of music. It was Madame Nielsen's first appearance that winter, and what the daily press had already learned to describe as, quote, an exceptionally brilliant audience, had gathered to hear her, transported through the slippery, snowy streets in private bromes, in the spacious family landau, or in the humbler but more convenient brown coupe, to come to the opera in a brown coupe was almost as honorable a way of arriving as in one's own carriage, and departure by the same means had the immense advantage of enabling one, with a 
playful allusion to democratic principles, to scramble into the first brown conveyance in the line, instead of waiting till the cold and gin-congested nose of one's own coachman gleamed under the portico of the academy. It was one of the great livery stablemen's most masterly intuitions to have discovered that Americans want to get away from amusement even more quickly than they want to get to it. When Newland Archer opened the door at the back of the club box, the curtain had just gone up on the garden scene. Now, when this book came out in 1920, Wharton was actually recreating a Gilded Age world from 50 years previous. And yet, Edith Wharton had left New York many, many years before that. By this time, she wasn't even living in the United States. So who was Edith Wharton? We'll be exploring her story today and discussing her somewhat tricky relationship with New York. And we won't be alone because we'll be joined by Carl Raymond, an Edith Wharton lecturer and tour guide. So join us as we flip through the pages of Edith Wharton's New York. So, Tom, in terms of situation today, we are not only going to be discussing the great novelist, Edith Wharton, but we're also going to take a dive into the years of New York during the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. We always drop the phrase Gilded Age. We always talk about the Gilded Age as if everybody knows what it is. But could you Mm -hmm. give us like a little refresher, um, a little brief reintroduction Sure, and this actually allows us to discuss one of my favorite misconceptions about old New York, the term itself, Gilded Mm -hmm. Age. Many people assume, you know, that it was a loving term for an era, a sort of nostalgic phrase that was meant to evoke the good old days, right? But that really wasn't the case, because the Gilded Age refers to a period, roughly speaking, following the Civil War and continuing up until around 1900, Uh, give or take a few years, when the American economy was really booming, it was roaring to new heights, and when great progress was being made, you know, in engineering, manufacturing, transportation, and along with it, of course, enormous fortunes were being made in those fields as well. Uh, Fortunes being made by industrialists and financiers like Cornelius Vanderbilt and John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Jay Gould, and many others. And those families that held all that wealth and, you know, built these extraordinary industries here naturally lived in ever larger, more lavish homes, uh, many Mm -hmm. of them on Fifth Avenue. That's right. And they also built themselves lavish homes uh, in posh summer spots like Newport, Rhode Island. But the thing is, New York society by the time the Gilded Age got here, was already firmly established. You know, it had been in some form around since the Dutch days. And meanwhile, there were other families, like the Astors, for example, who um, had more recently amassed their fortunes, didn't go back to the Dutch days, but they were also more established than other newcomers and industrialists. Yeah, in fact, uh, John Jacob Astor actually began investing in real estate as early as 1799. 
Yeah, and and then his grandson, John Jacob Astor III, would actually be one of the wealthiest people in Gilded Age New York. So New York society during the Gilded Age was really a mixing of fortunes here, both very old fortunes and the nouveau riche. Yeah, um, and this mixing that took place and you know, really from the 1870s to 1900, it could sometimes be kind of awkward. But to return back to that phrase, the Gilded Age, uh, this is a pejorative term. Yes, the phrase was coined by Mark Twain in his 1873 work, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. Um, he meant it to describe this post-war, post-Civil War period in the U.S., which was a time of great economic expansion, but also of huge social challenges. This period, the Reconstruction period, it had been promised as a sort of golden age for America. And yet it turns out that that gold was mostly a mirage. You know, America wasn't golden. It was simply covered in a cheap and shiny gilding, a thin mm. layer that was meant to, to really disguise the problems that lurked just beneath the surface. A cheap paint. Yeah. The largest of these problems, of course, is that growing income disparity, that inequality that, you know, encouraged these fortunes to grow ever larger throughout the decades. What that fueled those fortunes, yeah, because millions of immigrants were arriving in New York, and these were the people who were literally powering this economic and industrial revolution, and, and, and yet they were benefiting very little from it. And the city physically was growing too, the population growing up the island, and then at the end of our period here in 1898 with the consolidation of New York. Just consider, you know, the, the population change from 1870, when New York's population was 942,000, to 1900, when it would be 3.4 million people. Of course, that encompassed greater New York by that period. But you had this tension then, right? All of these tensions between new fortunes and old fortunes, with the exclusion of the masses making that fortune possible, these elements then would all be brought in some degree to life in Edith Wharton's work. And so this was the New York that Edith Wharton was born into. So where does her family fit into this? Like, where in the class structure did, uh, did her family sit? Well, to answer that, I'm, I'm actually going to bring in our guest for today's show, Carl Raymond. Carl is a, a writer, lecturer, museum educator, and food historian. He's worked at the Merchant's House Museum and King Manor Museum and speaks regularly for organizations such as the Royal Oak Foundation, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the National Arts Club, the English-Speaking Union, and Edith Wharton's home, The Mount. Carl is also a licensed New York City tour guide. In fact, he leads a number of tours for Bowery Boys Walks, including one on Edith Wharton's New York. And he'll be hosting an event with us on April 13th about Gilded Age Dining. We'll talk about that later. Welcome to the show, Carl. Hi, Tom. Hi, Greg. I'm so happy to be on the show today and talk about one of my favorite subjects, which, of course, is, is Edith Wharton. So as Greg just proposed, Edith Wharton was, was born Edith Newbold Jones on January 24th, 1862 in New York. And her family was indeed part of society. How did the Jones family fit into New York's Gilded Age society? 
Well, Edith's family were part of the New Yorkers called the Knickerbockers, meaning that her ancestry went back to the Dutch and the English origins of the city. The word, uh, the term Knickerbocker used to describe this earlier New York uh, society came from the references to the, the pants that the early Dutch settlers wore. That's why they're called Knickerbockers. But it was a society that, that grew based on banking and shipping and the merchant class of New York. Uh, Edith Wharton's father, for example, didn't work. He uh, lived on uh, income from investments a life of leisure. Indeed. And there were Skirmerhorns, which was a great old uh, New York family name, Skirmerhorns. In her background, she had the Jones family, the Stevens family, and they all made up the Knickerbocker world. In Edith's world, when she started writing about the Gilded Age, she talked about the invaders, which were the businessmen that were arriving from other places to come to New York to make their their fortunes who had none of this old pedigree, none of this old background. She often called them the Lords of Pittsburgh, which I thought was such a wonderful uh, title because (laughs) what was fascinating about the Gilded Age is that it really wasn't about breeding now that determined how you function in society. It was all about money. And often these Aravis, these parvenus, these invaders had much more money than the old Knickerbocker society. And it was certainly the tension between the two of them that fueled a lot of the writing and the examples that she uses in her fiction. But Edith had this foray right into the very tops of society because even, for example, her father's first cousin was Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor the Mrs. Astor? She was. And interestingly, Edith and Caroline had met, of course. Edith had been to dinner at her mansion. They were certainly not close. And I find it interesting, towards the end of her writing life in the late 1920s, Edith actually wrote a story called After Holbein, in which she creates a not very complimentary portrait of Caroline Astor. She paints a portrait of this this woman as sort of a decrepit old woman living very much in the past. It's just interesting, uh, her comment on that. So we see how she's related in many ways, cousins, for example, aunts, uncles throughout New York society. But Edith would actually only spend the first four years of her childhood in New York because in 1866, following the end of the Civil War, the family would decide to to economize, if you will, in the most glamorous of all possible ways by (laughs) renting out their New York home and head to Europe to live really as expats uh, in, in a land of high culture, in a land that was also less affected by the currency devaluation that was afflicting the American economy back home. And during this incredible six-year period then, the Jones family would live in Rome, elsewhere in Italy. They'd live in England, in France, Spain, and Germany. And the young Edith would learn how to speak Italian and French and German. Carl, how do you think that this incredible six-year period abroad at such an early age affected Edith? I think that that period, that early period in her life when she was taken to Europe is really, to look at that as one of the real keys to understanding the character of Edith Wharton, because it was in those six years where her sensibility was really formed. She was exposed to the deep, rich, ancient cultures of Europe, a sense of beauty, a sense of 
culture that simply didn't exist in the United States at, at all. And when she came back to the United States as a young girl of 10, she looked around and there was none of that here. And if there's any overriding theme in her writing, both fiction and nonfiction, it's that. It was her lifelong search to recapture that, recreate that, and of course, ultimately, choose to spend her life not in America at all, but in a far more, for her, culturally rich and intellectually stimulating world of, of Europe. And it also introduced her as a girl, right, to these fine gardens, um, landscape architecture, things that she didn't have access to back in New York. Absolutely. You know, she wrote one time that she saw the world as a series of pictures and she wanted to try to make each one a little more beautiful. And I love that because her homes, her gardens, her spaces, her rooms, all of these were incredibly important to her. And it was that background that she had growing up and seeing the harmoniousness of of French-Italian culture that informed her eye and, of course, led her to publish her first book. And you mentioned that the Jones family would return to New York uh, in 1872 when she was 10 years old. And they moved back into their home on 23rd Street, just uh, west of Fifth Avenue and across the street from the rather bustling Fifth Avenue Hotel, which kind of ruled um, over the western side of Madison Square Park. And this is around the time with the 1870s and 80s here when the the center of social life, of high society, was actually around Madison Square and uh, the streets surrounding it. And so this would have been the centerpiece for her life as well. And here she was, 10 years old, multilingual, a world traveler. Carl, how did young Edith feel about being back in New York City? Oh, oh, she hated it. She really disliked it. It, it I think, rankled every shred of a sensibility. There's a passage that she writes uh, many, many years later in the mid-1930s when she writes her, her memoir, A Backward Glance, where she describes it. One of the most depressing images of my childhood is my recollection of the intolerable ugliness of New York, of its untended streets and narrow houses so lacking in external dignity, so cramped with smug and suffocating upholstery. What I could not guess was that this little low-studded rectangular New York, cursed with its chocolate-colored coating of the most hideous stone ever quarried, this cramped horizontal gridiron of a town without towers, porticos, fountains, or perspectives, hidebound in its deadly uniformity of mean ugliness, would, 50 years later, be as much vanished a city as Atlantis or the lower layers of Schliemann's Troy, or the social (laughs) organization which that prosaic setting slowly secreted would have been swept into oblivion with the rest." I think that leaves very little um, room for interpretation about how she felt about New York when she came back from Europe. It's also interesting that she it sounds like she loathed it. And yet she's also recognizing that 50 years later, she would be nostalgic for it. Well, absolutely. And one of the reasons for that is that when she starts to write The Age of Innocence, she's it's the 20, it's the beginning of the 20s. And she's looking back. She's looking back on a world that has disappeared. And she's also just been through World War One, which affected her tremendously enormous. Just it was uh, the destruction 
of this beautiful or the attempted destruction of this beautiful European world that she so valued. So she started looking back to this period of her childhood. And even though she was still critical of it, there was a, nost a nostalgia, there was a wistfulness about it. And I think that that is such a quality, certainly of Age of Innocence and some of her later writing. But here in her childhood, in the 1870s, there was already something unconventional about her, right? The fact that she was writing prose and poetry during this time. A collection of her poems was privately printed when she was just 16. But at the same time, she was being prepared by her parents or by society for a life of leisure and of hostessing. Was she interested in any of that? Uh, no, she uh, wasn't interested in participating it in it at all. I think there was a point, certainly in, in her early adulthood and certainly right after her marriage where she thought she had to participate in it, but that was not what she was interested in. It bored her tremendously. Uh, Edith Wharton was a natural writer. She was a natural observer. There are wonderful stories of her childhood where she engaged in a process called making up, which is what she called it, where she would march back and forth with a book in her hands, even as a young child before she could even read. And she would make up incredible stories or she would write the beginnings of stories on paper. These brown paper parcels would come. She'd save the paper and write in them. And yes, as a as a young adolescent and teen, she started acting on that impulse to create stories and wrote some some little bits of fiction and poetry when she was just a teenager. And yet she still had to, you know, follow the sort of rhythms and the the customs of her place in society. And in 1879, had her official coming out. Absolutely. And of course, much of that was was driven by her mother, Lucretia, whom she did not have a particularly warm relationship with. Most girls came out at the age of 18. Well, Lucretia and her father, more Lucretia, began to be very worried that Edith was far more interested in spending time reading and not interested in going to the dances and the balls and the things that you needed to do, of course, to catch a husband. So they brought her out a year early. She actually made her debut at age 17, and not even in the traditional way. A traditional debutante would generally be brought out at a dinner and a dance at Delmonico's, which was also at the time that location was was at Madison Square Park. She actually was brought out in a private home further up on Fifth Avenue. So it was a, a, a much different event, even the coming out itself, than some other young girls of her age. Well, a very significant tragedy struck while the Joneses were traveling in Europe during the winter of 1882. In fact, it was in March of 1882 when Edith's father, George, died in Cannes while they were traveling in France. Her father played a central role in her life and was somebody who had encouraged her creative path in some respects. She was also haunted by her final moments with him in Cannes, knowing that even he had feelings and this personality that, that was suppressed by his own social responsibilities. And a lot of Wharton's later characters, in particular Newland Archer in The Age of Innocence, you can actually see the same kind of lost expression that she believed that her father faced. Well, and her father's passing, I imagine, didn't bode well for her, uh, especially if she as Carl mentioned, Edith did not have a very uh, close relationship with her mother. 
No, this really threw her family situation asunder. Yet it wasn't like she could just leave home immediately afterwards. You know, young women very rarely ventured out on their own, especially in her particular social class here in the 1880s. Now, when the family did return back to New York, they sold their 23rd Street home and moved to another house at 28 West 25th Street. Although for a short time when they came back to New York, the family also lived at 7 Washington Square North, uh, which is very appropriate, of course, because of another very famous writer who grew up here, you know, just down the street, Mm. uh, one Henry James. With whom she would be friends. Yeah, they would actually be fast friends. In fact, their letters to each other would be among some of the greatest artifacts of American literature. I mean, can you imagine those two sparring <laughs> at each other, those two wordsmiths? But I mean, all, but speaking of wealthy elite, this actually calls into question Edith's financial support, which I can't quite wrap my head around, Carl. So what was her financial situation? I mean, as as someone, like, none of these people are ever working, right? They're just, like, living off this sort of a a cloud of money somewhere. Like, where is the money coming from for Edith and her family during the 1880s? Yes, I would would love to live in the same situation and live in a cloud of money, but unfortunately for us, (laughs) it's not the case, right? Um, Edith's financial... um, sources are, as you're right, they are complicated, but the simplest way to think about it, there was a series of inheritances uh, that she was very lucky to be a party of. The first, and really came as a surprise, was a relatively distant relative named Joshua Jones who had died and left her a surprising amount of money. So that's where it really began. Then when her father died that year in France, 1881, 1882, she had another inheritance from him. Her mother died in 1901 in Paris. She had moved to Paris. And so then there was another infusion of money from that. That got more complicated because, again, you can tell Edith and her mother had their issues and Edith's mother left the money in a trust with the stipulation that it was to be managed by Edith's older brothers. And then that led to an even more complicated relationship with them. What's Interesting about her financial situation is by the time she wrote The House of Mirth in 1905, that became a best-selling book, and she really began to generate significant money on her own. So the early finances definitely were the result of the inheritances, but then as she began to gather steam, and quite quickly, actually, as a best-selling writer, uh, she earned her own money. You know, I find it pretty striking just in terms of thinking about Edith's station in life right now and actually a little horrifying that the moment that she came out in society here there was a kind of a hourglass over her head right essentially giving her only a few years of viability as a young woman of ideal marrying age absolutely she was married when she was 23 and already if you were 23 years old you know eyebrows went up but She had met Teddy Wharton um, up in Maine. Teddy was part of her brother's, uh, one of her brother's sets of friends, and he seemed to fit the perfect bill. He was from a wealthy enough Boston family. He was a nice, affable man. He escorted her to the Patriarch's Balls. You know, everything seemed as if he would be 
the right choice. And yes, mm -hmm. I'm sure on Lucretia's side, there was a sense of haste to get the daughter married. Yeah. You know, Teddy, for a number of reasons, was was probably not the best choice overall. Nonetheless, she was married relatively quickly. During this period, you know, Teddy wasn't the only man who was interested in her. In fact, there is this one very fascinating gentleman that I just want to spend a minute with named Walter Berry. And he's, he figures into our story here because he's of the old Van Rensselaer family. Mm. So again, another one of these big New York names. Back to the Dutch days. Yeah. And she, later in her life, called him the love of her life. And we can only speculate, really, about the true nature of that affection, because Edith destroyed most of her letters with him when he died in 1927. You know, I love it in these literary greats in their biographies when you read about burned and destroyed letters oh. right like the mystery that uh, that surrounds these these fascinating relationships I mean, burning letters like this, it's not like deleting your emails. I mean, what are we going to do if we want to bury secrets like that today? Uh, um, I, Greg, that's but... why we use Signal. <laughs> well, though, there will be more letter burning in a second in the House of Mirth. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but no, let's actually come back to Teddy, um, who Carl introduced, who would, in fact, uh, be her husband on April 29th of 1885, the two were actually married at Trinity's Uptown Chapel, which I bet many people don't realize there was an Uptown Chapel, at West 25th Street, conveniently across the street from the row house where Edith's mother lived, and a rather notorious church. Because 14 years before, back in 1871, this is where the daughter of William Boss Tweed had oh. gotten married in such a lavish ceremony that people wondered openly, like, hmm, where did Tweed get all of this money? And that would be one of the first of Tweed's many dominoes to fall, um, and is an entirely separate podcast. But Greg, yes, <laughs> is Trinity's Uptown Chapel here still around? Um, well, Kind of. Uh, in the 1940s, it was converted into an Eastern Orthodox church, the Serbian Orthodox Cathedral of St. Sava. But in 2016, the church was destroyed in a horrible fire. So, But its walls today, believe it or not, are still standing. The skeletal remains of this church are still there. But let's just stop for a second and just like take note of of most of the locations we've mentioned so far, right? Washington Square, mm -hmm. 23rd Street, 25th Street. The world of Edith Wharton and the old money elite here was actually really small geographically. Uh, to quote from a Charles McGrath piece in the New York Times from 2004, quote, Her New York is very slender. It stretches from 3rd Avenue to 6th, essentially, and its center is what is now the campus of New York University. Carl, you have led dozens of tour groups to these various sites, walked to these various paths. How do people react to the relative smallness of the life of the elite? Oh, I think that, for me, is the greatest revelation of the tour. It's interesting to talk about the history, of course, of the various sites. But it's what happened to me when I first put that tour together. You can palpably feel how small and, and even more than that, how claustrophobic and how stifling 
that world really was. When you think of being born on 23rd Street, going to church on 21st Street, going to the Academy of Music on 14th Street, this is not a large geographical mm -mm. area. And God forbid you would go into the Lower East Side and, and much north, there wasn't much there. It, yes, it's a very small, suffocating, confining world. And when you take the tour, you actually feel that. And I don't think people really <laughs> expect to. And, you know, I, I mean, how are they supposed to get their 10,000 steps in? <laughs> but, you know, you note as you're reading her novels that there's always, you know, Lily Barch or Newland Archers observing so-and-so's carriage in front of so-and-so's mansion on Fifth Avenue. And you're wondering how convenient that they just happen to pass by and see this thing. But really, if geographically speaking, you know, their neighborhood was pretty small then that is somewhat reasonable to assume that they would be passing by and noticing each other's carriages outside each other's houses. I think it's really important to, to make the point, you know, this is particularly the world of the 1870s, the world in which um, Age of Innocence takes place. Um, it's still true once we get up into House of Mirth and some of the later novels. But the thing that I think is interesting is that one's entire life was under complete scrutiny all the time. And your example really illustrates that. People were looking at whose car, I mean, I suppose people are looking at whose cars are parked out front today, but it, it was very much the case then, the scrutiny. Although I should add that, you know, Edith and Teddy would end up owning another home in the 1890s, much further north at 884 Park Avenue on the Upper East Side. Partly... I imagine, to get away from her mother, but really a world away, if you think about it, in this era before the subway and before the automobile. But the real story here, just in terms of like transportation, weren't her travels in the city, but actually out of New York entirely, and then, of course, eventually out of the United States. So let's actually start with one major destination for Wharton, um, which was Newport, Rhode Island, which was this massive haven for the wealthy during the Gilded Age, where all the major New York families went for the summer and often for longer. And it would be a location hugely important in Edith's work, as we've already mentioned. And by 1893, she would even own a very lavish place here, a mansion called Land's Inn. So Carl, like, because I can't perceive of a life in Newport <laughs> amongst this particular class, what would Edith's life, just generally speaking, what would it have been like in Newport in the 1890s? Like, what did people do? Edith didn't have a lot of use for it either. You know, you would you would go to the casino, you would go to tennis parties, you would go to lawn parties, you would certainly go to balls and dinners, everything that uh, you might have just imagined the Society of New York City just picking up and moving to Newport and doing it all over again, except there happened to be a beach nearby. Um, Edith's <laughs> life in Newport was was interesting. When she was first married, she and Teddy lived in a cottage on her mother's property. And you had mentioned Land's End. Um, when she and Teddy finally bought lands and they bought it at the entire opposite end of Newport, again, not let's get away from mama. Uh, but that was important because Edith really withdrew from participating. She did some of it, of course, but withdrew from the role of, of society matron in Newport. And what she found instead were people 
by chance that really stimulated her intellectual and cultural sensibilities in a way that even Teddy, her husband, never could. One was the French writer Paul Bourget, who she met in Newport, and they became very good friends. He and his wife, Minnie, were here. He was eventually to write a book on his American impressions. And she met the interior designer Ogden Codman, uh, who was also in Newport, and they together renovated the entire interior of Land's End. When they bought Land's End, Land's End wasn't a very attractive house, and and she and, and Codman really put their design skills together, and of course that was going to eventually result in a book. But those two relationships really were important to her, and they came out of her experience in Newport. Now, you mentioned Bourget, which is leading me to, of course, her greatest love in this period was not just traveling out of New York, but traveling out of the United States, and in particular, into Europe, various places, mostly to Italy during this period, but also to France and England. I think I read somewhere that she crosses the Atlantic throughout her life 66 times. I mean, traveling today is exhausting. Okay. <laughs> so I cannot imagine, like, how did she do it? I mean, it seems like she's always packing up and going places. I mean, her biography is filled with locations. Well, first of all, you brought your staff with you. Let's be clear about that. You know, when you travel <laughs> yes, with seven, seven members of your staff, or less than that, but nonetheless, that, that helps because who's going to do the packing, the unpacking, the cleaning, the organize, you know, all of this. And Edith often traveled with a maid, with a driver. I mean, there were people that she traveled with. She was called a cosmopolitan. In fact, Henry James called her the great pendulum because she swung back and forth between Europe and America, which I find fascinating. What's fascinating really about it is that she felt like an exile in America. You know, she really did not feel comfortable here. So she spent as much time in Europe as she possibly could. That Italian period in the 1890s was so important because she started to write and publish articles about her experiences in Italy. And of course, uh, that resulted in a couple of books on Italian experiences and also the villas and the gardens that she experienced in Italy. Um, yeah, it, it's even a little ironic, I think, that her travels motivate her to write because, of course, her most famous works would actually be about the place that she left. And if we're talking about a swinging pendulum and 60-some times back and forth, consider the fact that in her last several decades, she actually didn't travel that much back and forth. So, you know, mm -hmm. she was mostly just living in Europe. So really, all of that travel was in the first half of her life. I think it was also when she was on a search. I think it was a deeply personal search for what made sense to her in her life. Now, whether she would have identified it as that at that point, who knows, do we ever at certain points in our life, particularly when we're young, by the time she finally relocates to, to Europe and to France, she's settled at that point. The harmonic convergence has, has happened. So she's already you know, dabbling into writing, uh, working on this extraordinary book called The Decoration of Houses with Ogden. But by 1902, she ventures into writing fiction, full-length fiction, with a book called The Valley of Decision, a historical yarn about an Italian duke that was set in the late 18th century. She sends a copy over to her friend, Henry James, because if you're friends with Henry James, why wouldn't you just send him the things that you write, right? <laughs> That's what you do. He happens to, at the same time, have just, he just finished his book, The Wings of the Dove, 
may have heard of that. You know, while he does admire Edith's book here, The Valley of Decision, he does write her, it's like a very gentle, delicate nudge away from this sort of subject matter. He says, quote, my desire earnestly, tenderly, intelligently to admonish you while you are young, free, expert, exposed to illumination, by which I mean, while you're in full command of the situation, admonish you, I say, in favor of the American subject. She takes his advice, and in 1905, we get her first full-length novel about New York City. And the name of that book is The House of Mirth. We'll let Edith take us into the House of Mirth right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. In 1903, Edith Wharton started writing an ambitious novel, one that would be published in monthly installments in Scribner's Magazine, beginning in January 1905, and would be published as a novel that October. 
Tom, I happen to know that you literally finished reading this book yesterday. That's true. And we had a nice conversation about it. But can you give us like a kind of a quick summation of what the story is about? Absolutely. And I was I was completely absorbed in the book um, for the past several days um, as I had never read this one before. Now, Warning, uh, my little summation here contains some spoilers. So if if you don't want to know what happens, skip forward about one minute. (laughs) The House of Mirth tells the story of two years in the life of Lily Bartz, an exceptionally beautiful, socially prominent, and conflicted woman who is 29 years old when the tale begins. Lily fits neatly into the upper echelons of New York society. The top families around which it turns, the Trenners, the Stepneys, the Dorsets, and Van Osbergs, they're her friends, or relatives, or at least regular social companions. And yet, Lily doesn't quite fit in, as she no longer has the money that brought her family to prominence long ago. Both of her parents are now dead, and have left her very little, And Lily has been forced to live with a conservative, wealthy aunt in her somewhat dreary Fifth Avenue mansion. The House of Mirth follows Lily as she navigates a world of -of turn-of-the-century New York social pressures and conflicts. Why hasn't she married? Why does she sabotage every fitting and wealthy suitor drawn to her? And what if the one man she really does love, her intellectual equal, Lawrence Selden, a dashing young lawyer who frequents the same social circles and who the reader just knows would be the perfect match, if only he had the money that she thinks she requires. Instead, Lily uses her charms to find the funding required to keep up her lifestyle and appearances. And here the tragedy and the descent begins as we witness the wrath of her benefactor and the lies spread by a jealous competitor Bertha Dorset, and then we watch Lily fall completely from her perch atop society to a dismal existence living in a crowded boarding house, plotting a return to society and a true love that will never come. Instead, Lily becomes addicted to chloroform, a sedative that she uses to to calm her nerves and sleep, and which ultimately kills her. In the two years covered by the novel, we see Lily's total devastating transformation, brought on by her own greed and expensive lifestyle, but also by a hypocritical and uncaring upper class, concerned only about appearances and its own amusement. Now, Carl, that is a very sad story. I was wrecked at the end of it. But it also it also allows us a chance to visit, a rather tantalizing chance to visit through Lily, you know, turn of the century New York. How do you think that Edith Wharton paints New York in The House of Mirth? Um, do you think it's a flattering portrait of the city? Oh, it's actually a very angry and satirical portrait of the city. I mean, she was she was very angry at the society that had produced and destroyed Lily Bart. Uh, it was fascinating when the novel was published in the installments. It was almost a cliffhanger. People couldn't wait for the next installment to see, well, what happened to her and what was her next downfall? And 
in fact, Edith was actually criticized that she had stripped New York society bare in her portrait. And she, I love her retort. She said, oh no, New York society is still amply clad and I have only lifted the hem of the garment to show the small atrophied organ, <laughs> the idle and dull people that exist in any large and wealthy body uh, you know her sense wow. of, of um, satire <laughs> even there is is really wonderful what i think is so important though about the novel is you know wharton was self-educated she never she never went to school and she was extraordinarily well self-educated and she had read darwin and huxley and spencer and veblen the, the great anthropological mm -hmm. writers and social economy all of this and that's what she applied to New York society in the House of Mirth. Mm. So it's really a Darwinian analysis of the society. Um, do, do we know if the characters that she created, you know, I mentioned the Trenners and Dorsets and Percy Grice and Simon Rosedale, were these based on real people? Or do you think these were just kind of composite characters? I think that is actually Wharton's genius in in creating the house of mirth because she would never go so far out on the edge because remember this is a a 1905 novel she's writing in 1905 she's writing about a contemporary society if she had been that clear about creating an exact portrait of someone that would not have been a good thing but the characters are composites and when you read them and when her audience read them you felt like you knew them but not anyone specific however it is it is interesting scholars and biographers have speculated it's often thought that uh lawrence selden is a uh, thinly veiled walter berry um mm. also the wonderful um social climbing well they're not wonderful but the the social climbing couple the wellington brys mm -hmm. um would have been a veiled portrait of the Bradley Martins, who were, of course, famous for the great expensive ball that they threw. Uh, but again, similar uh, social climbers. And then the whole scene at Bellamont with the Trenners, that's thought of as a fairly thinly veiled mansion of the Ogden Mills. Hmm. But she was very deft and very artistic in how she created her characters as composites. And in the House of Mirth, she takes us repeatedly to the opera, into banquet halls, um, in, into a restaurant or two, to a wedding, um, and inside many mansions. I think that, you know, I, I think that's another one of the genius aspects of what she was doing in the House of Mirth, because she takes you into a range of societal places you know the 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 an apartment house where selden lives mm -hmm. or into the opera or into the higher level thing and readers of her period would have almost voyeuristically been able to look in to all the different layers of society which she creates and often and this is probably why the novel cuts so close is probably see themselves and how was it received House of Mirth was really a phenomenon in the publishing world at the time, as well as for Edith Wharton herself. It was enormously popular. It sold well over 100,000 copies in its first year of publication and became a bestseller in 1906, the following year. That is an extraordinary number of books, even for today's publishing world. And when it was published monthly 
in Scribner's magazine, people really wanted to, they couldn't wait for the next installment to see what happened to this unfortunate Lily Bart. Were her fortunes going to turn around? And also waiting to see the next portrait of society that Wharton would reveal. So I think New York really was sitting on the edge of its lovely tufted sofas waiting for the next installment. And it's interesting then that around the same time, Edith and Teddy would start spending more time in Paris uh, in 1906, renting an apartment on the Rue de Varennes uh, from George Vanderbilt, in fact. And this would kind of kick off this next chapter in her life, right, that she spent living abroad, mostly in France, because four years later in 1910, she would actually sell her New York house and buy an apartment on that same street in Paris and become more and more established as a member of this cosmopolitan world of writers and artists, philosophers living in Paris. I think that's exactly right. You know, the experience in 1906 when when she and Teddy really rented the Vanderbilt apartment, I think was absolutely a turning point. You know, she had been connected to France really ever since her childhood, of course. We, we'd said she spoke fluent French. It was often said that she spoke perfect French a la Louis XIV, which of course was from her childhood readings of Racine and Corneille and Moliere. So it was quite a, a formal French. And then in, in the early years of the the 1900s, she spent a lot of time on her motor trips through France. However, she always felt an exile in America, in New York, and France was really slowly becoming her spiritual home. She had, of course, built her own magnificent European country house, the Mount in Lenox, Massachusetts, which is open and you can visit to this day. And she combined French and Italian and English design principles. And it's an extraordinary house and and garden. But even for her, that was not enough. And France is where she ultimately found her intellectual and cultural center. She left the United States in, in 1911. And that was her last time at at the Mount. And it was a very difficult period for her as well, because just two years later, she actually divorces Teddy. And one of the reasons that I think figured into her decision to stay in France for the remainder of her life is she didn't want to come back to the United States and try to live as a divorced woman, she still had an enormous respect for marriage. And that was also true in, in France. The French, despite the fact they carried on outside marriages, still there was a respect for marriage and divorce was, was looked at negatively. So she stayed in France. She really focused her life on the cultural and intellectual world that she found there. She did, however, return to New York in 1913. Uh, she came back to attend the wedding of her niece, Beatrix Jones. And she called the trip, quote, a soul-destroying experience. Why do you think it was so hard for Edith to come back to New York City, the city of her birth, in 1913? Well, first of all, she was, in fact, coming back as a divorced woman. She had divorced Teddy at this point, and she was, she was concerned about what her reception was going to be, particularly in her class that she had left. Now, the good news was she was very warmly received because let's remember, after all, she was a major best-selling writer at this point. So, mm -hmm. But I think she had emotionally left and she saw so much of how America was developing 
and it didn't have the moral center and focus that was so important to her to have. One of my favorite quotes of hers, in fact, it's on my business cards to this day, is how sad for a country to be developing and eating bananas for breakfast. You know, she was always enormously <laughs> prescriptive, even uh, in something in something like that. God, I'm glad she doesn't see what I have for breakfast. <laughs> and then in the midst of it, there's World War One, she, and she's living in Paris, and she even gets involved rather prominently in the French war effort. I think I think um, Edith's war years, it's an extraordinary part of her life, one that doesn't get looked at all that much simply because uh, she was producing almost nothing um, from a literary point of view during that time, although towards the end of it, she did um, do some writing, some war reporting, some fiction uh, based on the war, but she was enormously helpful in the French Red Cross. It just, I think, shows another angle of this extraordinarily rich woman. Now, Edith did attempt to write about the war. It would have been a natural thing for her to do, but as she had learned back in her House of Mirth years, you know, her deepest and most resonating tales were about the New York that she left behind. You know, they say, write what you know, in her case, write what she knew. The world was already changing so rapidly in the 1910s, and nostalgia was actually a big seller, especially after World War One and all, you know, all the destruction scene of the old world. Mm -hmm. But her novel, The Age of Innocence, it seemed to kind of rise out of her. It's one of these extraordinary literary moments because it only took her a few months to write this from September 1919 to March of 1920. In fact, it was then immediately published in magazine serial form that year and then finally published as a book in October of 1920. Just a little more than 100 years ago. Could you give mm -hmm. us a little plot synopsis? Oh, Sure. So a very different world than House of Mirth, although the same place. This actually takes place in New York in the 1870s, right? So she's looking back almost 50 years into the past. The story is more or less about two cousins and the man between them, a man named Newland Archer, who's a handsome and desirable heir to one of New York's biggest families. His fiancée, Mae Welland, is a perfect social match for him, but his heart truly belongs to a childhood love, her cousin, the worldly Ellen, a.k.a. the Countess Olenska, who has recently separated from her titled Polish husband, and she's back in New York here. But her appearance, you know, as a divorced woman, is, uh, sends shockwaves through the ballrooms of Fifth Avenue. Now, I'm not going to spoil what happens to our trio here, but oh. needless to say, Alenska does fall victim to some of the things that Lily Bart experienced. It is also an extraordinary story about resilience of love, about the suppression of emotion. And I think that it's interesting here, coming in the year 1920, it really ends up becoming a tentpole of Wharton's reputation, even though she will continue to write for many, many years after this. Carl, from your interaction with all these Wharton fans that you give tours to, what is it about 
the Age of Innocence that is so uniquely appealing? I think it's really ex- extraordinary to look at Age of Innocence and see why it is so resonant. And I think that there are a number of reasons for it. You know, overall, Wharton novels don't end happily. I mean, this is not Jane Austen mm-hmm. here that we're talking about, you know. But Age of Innocence ends with that very wistful sense of love lost or love that's been unfulfilled. And there is, we've used this word several times, there is this deep nostalgia and wistfulness in tone to the novel, which is very Mm -hmm. different from House of Mirth. And I often encourage people to read the two of them together and you get a completely different sense of there's the frustration and anger that she feels in House of Mirth. But in Age of Innocence, as she looks back to that time when she was a child and looking for some sort of moral order, some sort of base that you know, after World War One, just simply didn't seem to exist. So I think people get a sense of that. And also that sense of love lost is something that I think everybody can deal with or, or relate to on one, one level. Some of the other Wharton mm-hmm. novels deal with divorce and extramarital affairs and illegitimate children. And we don't have any of that in Age of Innocence. Also, to have a beautiful film adaptation, the Scorsese 1993 Mm -hmm. adaptation, I certainly think does not hurt in the promotional scene of that novel. So it is a novel that so many people love. I think it's very difficult to, to adapt her work for the visual screen because everything is so lushly described. You can't do it better than she could. In fact, to read from the original New York Times review by William Lyon Phelps in October of 1920, quote, I do not remember when I have read a work of fiction that gives the reader so vivid an idea of the furnishing and illumination of rooms and fashionable houses as one will find in the Age of Innocence. Those who are interested in good dinners, and who is not, (laughs) will find much to admire in these brilliant pages, unquote. It's kind of like don't go don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. Um, d- don't read <laughs> yes. Edith Wharton when you're hungry. No, in fact, um, hope no listeners are hungry right now. Carl, could you read a little bit from the Age of Innocence? Maybe a scene where they're around a dinner table. Uh, of course, you know one of the things I always say about food in Wharton, and particularly food in the Age of Innocence. You see it when you when you look at the Scorsese film. Food almost becomes a character. Mm-hmm. in the film because the camera's eye is so attuned to it as as was Scorsese's. In Wharton's fiction, every time she mentions something, whether it's architecture or fashion, we have to pay attention. She's telling us something for a reason to define character. And so I, I'm going to read just a very brief section. This is from a scene towards the end of the novel. There are a number of dinner scenes in Age of Innocence. I encourage you to pay attention to all of them because she's telling you something different in each one. But this is the dinner that Newland Archer and May give as their first dinner as a young couple after they're married. And it is essentially the dinner it's a meeting of the tribal elders who, to say farewell to Ellen Olenska and send her back to Europe. She's essentially being booted out of the tribe. So under all of this beauty and opulence that's described, there's, there's really a, a, a much darker, darker message. It was as Mrs. Archer smilingly said to Mrs. Welland, a great event for a young couple is to give their first big dinner. And a big dinner with a hired chef two borrowed footmen with Roman punch, 
roses from Henderson's, and menus on gilt-edged cards was a different affair and not to be lightly undertaken. As Mrs. Archer remarked, the Roman punch made all the difference, not in and itself, but because of its manifold implications, since it signified either canvas backs or terrapin, two soups, a hot and cold suite, full decolletage with short sleeves, and guests of proportionate importance. And there's so much in what she says there. Uh, she mentions Roman Punch. Roman Punch was essentially a very slushy and very alcoholic palate cleanser that was um, that was offered in the middle of a, a long meal. And once you had that, you knew you were going to have a long meal. As she mentions here, she talks about canvasback ducks. That was sort of one of the most popular and most expensive dishes during the Gilded Age. They were basically being hunted to extinction. So the price went up. And the same thing with terrapin, which were freshwater turtles. Again, very expensive. All of those details matter and they give the sense of what that dinner would have been like. And what's interesting is that's like that's a dinner from another world, right? I mean, this book is being released in 1920, the era of like automats, for instance, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, eating is just a, just a completely different thing. So she's describing it in a fantastical world. And so I think it's incredible how big this book was. Like, it's extraordinary what a success it was, both as a cultural history and a critical one as well. In May of 1921, Edith would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature for The Age of Innocence. By the way, just to put it in perspective here, the other major Pulitzer that particular year went to the newspaper The Boston Post, who exposed a series of schemes perpetrated by the con artist Charles Ponzi, which led to his arrest and led to the phrase Ponzi scheme entering our modern lexicon. <laughs> I just gasped. Wait, big, some big moments in the American language. And everybody got to learn how to say uh, Olenska as well, which, Olenska. Yes. by the way, I just have realized that it actually activates Alexa in my room. So I'm going to stop saying Madame Olenska. <laughs> Ol Olenska, please turn on the lamp and sleep with my fiance. <laughs> but here she is in the 1920s recreating 1870s New York. Would Edith actually ever come back to this city that she spent so much time recreating? She did come back one more time in the summer of 1923 to get an honorary degree at Yale which is pretty amazing. But for the most part, you know, I mean, she's done with New York by this time. She's just absolutely over it. She's just not fond of the jazz age infused New York. She thinks it's too fast and it's too reckless. But she would continue to write about New York and America in general, like well into the 1920s and the 1930s here in books like Hudson River Bracketed and The Glimpses of the Moon, which is a personal favorite of mine. It's a very entertaining book about a pair of socially prominent young New Yorkers, party kids, maybe, uh, who just happen to be completely broke. So that's kind of the twist mm. <laughs> on this particular story. But for the most part, she basically settles into life in France, pretty much to the end of her life here. Carl, with what was she 
like just in these later years, in the final years of her life, ensconced here in a house north of Paris? Did she, she gallivant through Paris and or was she someone who basically kept to herself and sort of lived in the glow of her legacy? Well, Edith's love of travel never completely stopped, and she spent time going to England. She had a home in the south of France, in Hier. She had the Pavillon Colomb outside Paris. I think the thing when I look at her later years is that she never stopped her curiosity. And the most important thing that I, I always try to share with people is that Wharton was a far more complex woman than I think we usually think. She was just not creating the world of the Gilded Age, and that's all she she wanted to do. Uh, the years into the 20s and 30s, we've talked uh, a lot of, about that. It was a very retrospective time for her. She published her her memoir, A Backward Glance in 1934. The thing to know about that, it's very selective memoir. You know, as many of writers' <laughs> memoirs are, things are left out. Uh, things are reordered. Things are glossed over. Uh, she also wrote an extraordinary collection of four novellas called Old New York. And each one of them, she wrote it in 1924, a couple of years after Age of Innocence. And each one is set in a different decade. She starts in the 1840s and ends in the 1870s. And in that, she goes back into the world of her parents and looks at that with the world of the 1840s. Mm. And, and uh, the couple that you see in that is, is, again, a very thinly veiled portrait of her parents. You know, she had an image of being this very prim, buttoned up, tailored woman in later years. There are some accounts of her, but she really did have a tremendous sense of humor. And if you were one of her friends, if you had made it under the velvet rope, she certainly let that sense of humor out. So I think she would have been wonderful uh, to get to know <laughs> and sitting around on the terrace of Pavillon Colomb. On June 1st, 1937, while visiting her old friend Ogden at, at his French country estate, Edith visited, was visiting and actually had a heart attack and collapsed while she was there. Just a few months later, on August 11th, 1937, she died at her estate at the Pavilion Colomb. She's buried not in the United States, but in Versailles, because, I mean, really at this time, she was considered an honored and revered citizen of France, thanks in part to, to the work that she did in France during the war. But I want to take one final glance back to old New York, to Edith's old New York, to the places that she lived, the places that she would have been familiar with. Carl, what even, what even exists today of the things that she describes in her books. I mean, is it possible to kind of relive a little bit of the stories as you're walking through Manhattan of just, you know, in these handful of blocks? Oh, absolutely. I always say if you squint a little bit and don't do that when you're crossing a street, but if you squint a little bit, you can absolutely see the world of the Gilded Age. Uh, her birthplace is still there. Uh, 14 West 23rd Street is covered with cast iron fronting, but the house was still the old brownstone where she was born. The bones of the house are still there. The ground floor is now a Starbucks, which I find fascinating because the area where the milk and almond milk and soy milk is, that would have been where her father's library was, where she learned to read. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in the show, number seven, Washington Square North, that is still there. That house is the most intact space that we have in New York as a house that she would have known. Grace Church, 
is fully intact, built in the 1840s. She was christened there. She sets the great wedding of May Welland and Newland Archer at Grace Church, very much the Society Church. Calvary Episcopal Church on Park Avenue at 21st Street. That was her childhood church. That is still there. And of course, you mentioned earlier the wedding church, Trinity Chapel, which became the Cathedral of St. Sava, hoping the restoration continues on that. But the exterior is is still there. So there are many sites she would have known her. One of my favorites is on West 11th Street, which is the home of her sister-in-law and brother, Freddie Jones, and his wife, Minnie. Minnie was a great friend of Edith's. That townhouse is still there and virtually intact. And they were the parents of Beatrix that we mentioned, who was her niece so close to her. Mm -hmm. So yes, Edith's world is still there. And it's possible to see a lot of it even today. Well, thank you for helping us rediscover Edith Wharton's New York. Carl, we really enjoyed having you on the show. And as we said before, we will be doing an event together in just a couple of weeks on April 13th, an evening where you will be taking us on a dining adventure in Gilded Age, New York. Oh, I am so looking forward to that. We're going to be looking at some of the most famous restaurants of the period, certainly talking about Delmonico's. I'll be taking you through a Gilded Age dinner party, what it would have been like, what to expect, some of the food. And using some really extraordinary archival material, we'll take you into some very specific dinners, including those given by J.P. Morgan and Stanford White and even a ball by Mrs. Astor herself. Oh my goodness. So I look forward to sharing all of that with you and maybe even tasting a little bit of Roman punch in the middle of our evening. Oh yeah, we are in fact going to be sending around recipes so that the attendees can make their own, whip up a batch of Roman punch and in the middle of the presentation, Greg and I will be lifting a glass, a frothy glass of Roman punch to, to lead a toast to Gilded Age Dining. Carl, will there be any terrapin and canvas back making an appearance? There, well, I will talk about them and I will show you some images and we'll look at some uh, menus where they um, were prominent selections of menus. But no, we will not be eating that. There is no food uh, included in this. <laughs> no terrapin. Unless one ha happens to have terrapin laying around. It's virtual. I suppose we should mention it's a virtual <laughs> event, but live, taking place on April 13th, 2021. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. There are still seats at the table available. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. For more Edith, images of her life, and images of old New York, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It is because of you that we are able to make the Bowery Boys our full-time job. We, we wouldn't be here without you. As a special thank you, we produce little extras like the Bowery Boys Movie Club and the Bowery Boys Takeout. And we'll be recording a new Bowery Boys Movie Club soon. In fact, we sent around a little survey to um, help guide us to the right film to watch together. Yeah, there's a hot uh, there's a hot competition between the top two <laughs> or three choices. So join us on Patreon and get your voice heard, and then we'll have that show then by late next week. We want to say thanks again. Carl, thank you for, for joining us here. Where can people find you? 
Oh, thanks so much, Greg and Tom. It's been such a pleasure uh, to be with you. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me and, and learn more, I encourage you to go to my website, which is carltalksandtours.com. Well, thank you, Carl. And thank you, listener, for joining us in Edith Wharton's New York. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye.